Well, this is letter six of seven in Revelation two and three that we come to this morning. We got one more, and then we begin to make our way through the rest of the Revelation to John from the Lord Jesus Christ. As we come this morning, um, we're going to consider the church at Philadelphia. And this is one of two churches in the seven letters that Jesus has no word of rebuke for. He doesn't have any word of correction or calling them to change anything or turn from anything or repent of anything. And we'll see why as we make our way through the letter this morning. But one of the reasons is that they are a church, as Jesus says in verse 8, of little power. And that isn't a rebuke. That's a commendation. Most commentators think that it indicates something about the size of their church and not about their spirituality. In other words, they were likely a small congregation. They were not strong in numbers. Maybe they were only big enough to fill someone's living room or a basement in a house. Maybe they were still renting a gymnasium in the local elementary school. Having little power isn't inherently or always bad. Size and influence are no measure of success in a church, as we'll see next week with the church at Laodicea. The two churches that seem to be the big shots in the seven letters, that is the church at Ephesus and the church at Laodicea, that have the most externally impressive features and have the would likely have the, the biggest um, cultural presence in their cities. These are the churches that are in the most danger of having Jesus close them. While the churches that draw the affection of Jesus and receive no correction from him are those who are the most insignificant, harassed, and helpless churches that if they close, no one would notice except Christ. And Christ wouldn't close them. The strongest churches in the eyes of the world are often the weakest in the eyes of Christ. And the weakest in the eyes of the world are often the most strong. A church can be richly weak or it can be poorly weak. A church can be richly strong or it can be poorly strong. The point that Jesus is encouraging the church at Philadelphia with this morning is that just because you're small... And just because you're insignificant and just because you feel like you lack any influence does not mean that you're not precious to Christ or noticed by Christ. So this morning is basically pure encouragement. It's encouragement for a little church with little power to not give up. To not think that just because they are a church marked by little power that they need to worry or give up in light of that. So we're going to give... Four big encouragements this morning for little churches. And I would count us among those little churches as well. So four big encouragements for little churches. Let's begin with the first big encouragement that Jesus offers the church at Philadelphia in verse 7. Focus on your Savior, not your size. Focus on your Savior, not your size. Verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write... The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Notice with me three things the Savior says about himself here. First, he calls himself 
the Holy One. The words of the Holy One. You might think, well, how's that supposed to encourage a church of little power? I'm the Holy One. He's holy. Well, oftentimes in the Old Testament, Holy One is used to describe God and it, use, and it uses that phrase to describe him in, in any number of different contexts and ways. But I think Isaiah 57.15 applies here. Listen to what Isaiah says about this Holy One. For thus says the One who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is Holy. Right? So God's getting ready to say through Isaiah, listen, I'm the One who inhabits eternity, I am holy. So I'm the holy one. Okay, tell us about yourself, holy one. And here's what he says. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Now, wouldn't that describe the church at Philadelphia? Lowly in spirit, weak, little power, So this phrase, holy one, perhaps they would have no doubt brought to mind Isaiah 57, 15 and said, listen, the holy one is the one, yes, who is great and awesome and powerful and who inhabits eternity and who is transcendent and above all and sovereign over all, but yet dwells with us in our little weakness. The holy one is here. I mean, this church would likely think, I mean, wouldn't the kingdom just carry on without us? I mean, are we really that significant? Are we that important to Jesus? To which the Holy One responds, the altogether unique and transcendent other in a class by himself would respond, you belong to me and I dwell among you. And not only that, but the essence of my holiness is to dwell with those who are lowly and broken and whose hearts are contrite before me. So absolutely, I am with you, church at Philadelphia. I am the holy one. Secondly, he says he's the true one, the true one. So not only is he holy, but he's also true. He, that means he's genuine. That all that he says and all that he does corresponds to reality. He is our confidence. He is the one in whom we trust. He is the one whose word is dependable. He is the one who is reliable. He is consistent. He is steadfast. No matter what our size, no matter what our stature, you never and no one who ever trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ ever trusted him in vain. And so he's encouraging this church, I'm the true one as well. I'm consistent. I'm reliable. Everything that I say corresponds to what is true. So depend upon me and remain steadfast and committed to me. Thirdly, he says he's the key of David who has the key of David. Jesus alone has access. This is a very important phrase in Revelation, really throughout the Bible. But Jesus alone has access. He has the key to the Messianic kingdom that was promised in 2 Samuel 7 to a descendant of David. And Jesus alone has undisputed authority to admit or exclude people from the New Jerusalem. That is eternal, new heavens, new earth. And the point is, is if he has included these Christians and us who are trusting in him, no one can exclude us. No one can kick us out. 
Since Jesus has opened the door to us and for us, no one can shut us out. And when he shuts the door to those who oppose him and his cause, no one can reverse that decision. He is the one who has the key of David. He is the one who determines who is in and who is out of the kingdom. Wouldn't that be a wonderful encouragement? As Jesus is calling this church and us this morning saying, listen, I know you feel like you've got little power. I know you feel like you've got little power in your church, in your life, in your job, in your family. But listen, don't focus on your size. Focus on your Savior. Focus on the Holy One. Focus on the True One. Focus on the key of David. Sam Storm says, the greatness of a church is not measured by its membership role or budgetary prowess, but by the size of the Savior whom it faithfully honors, passionately praises, and confidently trusts. The big church is any church that boasts in a big God, attendance and acreage notwithstanding. There is no lack in anything that matters. A mega church without a mega Christ is of little benefit to anyone. A mini church with a mega Christ, makes them big in the eyes of him whose opinion is the only one that matters. Number two, here's the second big encouragement for this little church. Focus on your opportunities, not your opposition. Focus on your opportunities, not your opposition. Notice what he says in verse eight. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, what is this open door? Well, first of all, I'm going to tell you what I don't think it means primarily in this passage, but it does mean in the Bible, okay? So this is a consistent principle, and some, several commentators see this as a reference to ministry opportunity, that it, there's an open door for ministry with this church in Philadelphia in this, in this city. He's saying, hey, don't focus on the opportunities for ministry, and that would certainly be true, Right? Think about 1 Corinthians 16.9, where Paul says, For a wide door for effective work has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. He's talking about the work of ministry, an open door of ministry. Also in 2 Corinthians 2.12, Paul writes, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord. So there again, an open door for ministry. Colossians 4.3, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. So it's absolutely consistent. This phrase, open door, is used often in the New Testament, especially by Paul, to refer to an open door for fruitful ministry. And brothers and sisters, that's true of every faithful church. And we need, to be, we, had, we need to recognize that. We too, our little church, has an open door for ministry. Think about how God has blessed our relatively small church with many open doors. By his grace, we have the privilege of making disciples here in Owensboro, Kentucky, adding members to our church through baptism, maturing disciples as we seek to bring them into worship and prayer and communion and fellowship with one another and grow in discipleship and engage with men and women and youth and kids and cultivate healthy marriages. We get open doors for innumerable practical ministry projects like sending laptops to seminary students in Serbia or caring for babies and their mothers via CareNet baby bottle campaign 
Or then we get the inestimable joy of having a worldwide impact for the gospel literally on five of seven continents. How crazy is that? That our little church touches five continents in some way? Sending missionaries to Serbia, Ireland, North Africa, partnering with indigenous workers in Cuba, Haiti, DR, India, Colombia, helping reach students on the college campus in Tennessee, or middle and high school kids in the community through Young Life, or the elderly in nursing homes, or the homeless, or those in recovery, or mentoring kids, or those in crisis pregnancies. And not the least of which, the, the, the privilege, the joy of teaching and discipling 200 students every week through Heritage Christian School. We have an open door, and Jesus has given us all of them, and they're all undeserved. I remember a seminary lecture a couple of years ago that I was watching with Bob Russell. Bob Russell was the former pastor of Southeast Christian in Louisville, and he was teaching a, a class or a, a, giving a lecture at Southern Seminary. And he put a picture up on, on, on the wall during his presentation, and it was a picture of the church I believe his parents grew up in. It was a small little, there were probably 35 people in the picture. And he began over the course of about 10 minutes in that sermon just to walk through one after another every way in which somehow that little group of people had touched tens of thousands of people around the world through, through their ministry there. And it just reminded me again of how the Lord is so pleased to take little efforts of faith and obedience and just mushroom them out and blossom them out all around the world. I mean, brothers and sisters, when we get to heaven, we will have no idea what God has done through our lives. We will be so surprised to learn of things that the Lord did, of people that the Lord brought to himself, of circumstances that we knew nothing about in this life that God used to advance his kingdom. And we will just be like, wow, I didn't, I, I knew, I knew a thimble full of that in my life, but I'm drinking in the ocean for eternity because God gave us so many opportunities. Now we do need to focus on those opportunities and, but I don't think the open door here is primarily a reference to ministry, at least when the way that Jesus is describing it to the church of Philadelphia. And here's why. I think the open door here is more likely a reference to the entrance that they have been granted into God's presence, not necessarily an open door for ministry, although that's true as well. But the primary emphasis is on the fact that they have been granted an open door into the kingdom of God, that God has opened the kingdom to this church, that they belong to him. Now, why do I say that? Well, a couple of different reasons. First of all, verse 7. Second of all, verse 9. So it's always good when you're reading the Bible and trying to understand what, what is meant by a particular verse to look at the verse before and look at the verse after, right? It typically gives you context, gives you help and in interpretation. So look again at verse 7, where we just read the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one can open. So again, that's referring to the key of David, which is the messianic kingdom, which is being granted an open door by Jesus Christ to this church. And then he says in verse 8, I have set before you an open door. And then in verse 9, he says, look, Behold, I will make those of a synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, this verse may sound strange to you, and it did to me as well. But it has rich Old Testament background. 
And I want to give you that right now so that you can see the irony that Jesus is pulling out for these Christians. In Isaiah 45, 14, we read the following about Gentiles, that is, non-Jews. Listen to Isaiah 45, 14. The Gentiles will come over to you, that is Israel, and will be yours, and they will walk behind you, and they will come over in chains and will bow down to you. Once again, in Isaiah 49, 23, we read, With their faces to the ground, the Gentiles will bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Now, are you picking up on the irony yet? In Isaiah 45 and 49, we read about how the Gentiles are going to come and bow down before the Jews. Now listen, in all these Old Testament texts, it's the Gentiles who grovel before Israel, but in Revelation 3.9, it's the Jews who will bow at the feet of this predominantly Christian Gentile church in Philadelphia. The irony intensifies when we read in Isaiah 60, verse 14, that the Gentiles who will call the Israelites the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel, but now in Revelation 3.12, the tables are turned. Look at 3.12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I'll write on him the name of my God in the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. I want you to also note that the words they will know that I have loved you, that we read at the end of verse 9, are probably an allusion to Isaiah 43, 4, because you, Israel, are precious in my sight and I love you. But this is thick with irony because all of these promises that in Isaiah 45 and Isaiah 60 and Isaiah 49 and Isaiah 43 that were applied to Israel are being applied to the church, the Gentile church of Jesus Christ. And again, this reinforces the notion that Jesus saw in the church the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophetic promises. In other words, the fulfillment of these prophecies will be the reverse of what the Philadelphian Jews expected. The gen they, the Philadelphia, the Jews in Philadelphia will have to bow down before the feet of the Gentiles and acknowledge that God has loved them. Let the Christians take heart, Jesus says, for it's on them that the Lord has set his favor. Now, he's talking about unbelieving Jews here that were persecuting the Christian faith, okay? Because you can, and you can understand why that persecution might happen, right? Here are these Christians saying that they have received the Jewish Messiah. And the Jews, at least the unbelieving Jews of those days, did not agree with that. But notice in verse 9 that Jesus calls them, and we've seen this language before in previous letters to different churches, a synagogue of Satan. They say they're Jews, but they're not. The implication being, if they were Jews, true Jews, they would receive me. That's what Jesus said throughout his ministry, right? If you were a true Jew, you would recognize that I am your Messiah. And so the irony here that Jesus is putting before this church is saying, listen, you're being persecuted and you're being said things. You're being saying, God doesn't love you. You're not in the kingdom. You don't belong there. You're not a Jew. And Jesus is saying to this church, they will come and bow down to you one day because I am with you. 
I love you, and all those Old Testament promises about who my people are belong to those who are in Christ, not those who are necessarily ethnically Jewish. But he promises them, listen, there's no guarantee that all that vindication is going to happen right now. He tells them, he he doesn't tell them with these exact words, but they might die with the charges of blasphemy echoing in their ears. But their comfort is the affection of God will not remain hidden from view forever. Jesus assures them that a day is coming when the world will know all too painfully that we are loved with an immutable and infinitely intense passion by the God of all creation. All ridicule will be redressed, every scoff will be silenced, every sneer will be wiped from their faces. Then there will be an indescribable display of divine delight and loud celebration as Jesus will say, maybe shout, maybe sing, for all to hear and show for all to see that he truly loves his own. Now that may not land on you the way it would land on the church in Philadelphia, but if you were a persecuted minority that was having all kinds of lies spread about you that you didn't belong in the kingdom, that would mean a lot to you. And it should mean a lot to us now because those days are probably not far from us as well. So Jesus encourages them, focus on your opportunities, not your opposition. Mainly the opportunity of being included in my kingdom because I've opened a door that no one can shut. Thirdly, third great encouragement for this small church. Focus on your provision, not your pain. Focus on your provision, not your pain. Couldn't these be true? Couldn't really these promises be true for all of us in any phase of life we find ourselves? But in verse 10, we read the following. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Now, when Jesus says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the world, I'm persuaded that Jesus is referring to something similar um, to what he refers to in Revelation 1.9, where, we, where John identifies himself with these churches as their brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Christ Jesus. So I think the hour of trial is another reference to the tribulation, which is a reference to the suffering of believers throughout the entire church age, during which there will always be suffering and tribulation for those who stand firm in their witness for Christ. Now, that isn't to deny that there will emerge an especially intensified and horrific period of tribulation in connection with the return of Christ at the end of history, but Jesus must have in mind an an experience that was impending this particular church, when he wrote those words, the hour of trial, or a trial that was already present for the Philadelphia believers in the first century and for all believers in subsequent centuries of the church's existence. Now, let me give you four quick reasons why I think this is referring to a broader category than just a narrow kind of moment in history, that the hour of trial is not just this little slice of time, but is rather a phrase that's used to describe the life of suffering that, we, that, that Christians will encounter in between the first and second coming of Christ. Let me just give you four quick reasons. Number one, the notion that any Christian is assured in some popular tribulational teaching of special protection from trials and persecution just doesn't wash in the New Testament. 
We've seen repeatedly in these seven letters that suffering for the sake of Christ and the gospel is something that he calls every single believer to embrace, not escape. It is the way he is glorified. See, so many in the church think that suffering somehow doesn't glorify God when his people suffer. Where do we get that idea? That is uniquely American, brothers and sisters. That is an American thing. When Jesus was praying and said, Father, what shall I say? Save me from this hour? Get me out of this suffering? He said, no. For this reason, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name through my suffering. And the Father says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again as you hang bleeding there. That is our God who glorifies himself through our suffering. God doesn't always want to make you whole, brothers and sisters. He wants to break you. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with a limping, broken, suffering life? You should be okay with it if you want God to be glorified. Where else are they going to see that he's your treasure? If you've got great health and a thick bank account, and a good job, and no suffering, claiming Christ, you know what what that looks like to the world? Nothing. It looks like you're boasting in the same things they are. But when it's all stripped away, and you rejoice, they got questions. Second, the trial of, of tribulation that is coming, notice in this particular passage, is designed for the judgment of unbelievers, not Christians. In verse 9, we read, those who dwell on the earth are subject, or earth dwellers, which is just a stock phrase in Revelation that always refers to pagan persecutors of the church. Revelation 610, 8.13, 11.10, 12.12, 13.8, 13.12, 13.14, 14.16, 17.2, 17.8. All this times this phrase is used is referring for the judgment of unbelievers, not Christians. Third, the promise then is for spiritual protection in the midst of physical tribulation. Jesus is assuring this church that he will provide sufficient, sustaining grace to preserve them in their faith no matter what they face. That's why I said we have to focus on our provision, not our pain. Jesus has promised to carry us through our suffering. The promise here is similar to what we find in Revelation 7 where the people of God are sealed lest they suffer spiritual harm from the tribulation. Clearly, believers endure and emerge from tribulation spiritually secure. Fourth, and finally, we must never forget that it's precisely in remaining faithful unto death that the greatest victory is achieved. Remember in Revelation 12, 11, believers conquer Satan and the beast by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they love not their lives even unto death. And that's the way in which they conquer. So Jesus concludes then in verse 11 with a word of assurance and of command. He says, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Now, what are we to make of this when he says, I'm coming soon? Well, one commentator suggests that the coming here, that Jesus says when he's coming, 
um, is the increased presence of Christ that will protect these believers when they pass through tribulation. So it's like, uh, I'm going to spiritually come to you. I'm going to come soon and spiritually strengthen you, as he just mentioned in verse 10, and that's certainly possible. In other words, this may be a spiritual coming to provide comfort and the power to persevere, a drawing near to their hearts, to energize them and keep their commitment to Christ. Then, in this case, his coming would be a spiritual coming and not a spatial coming. In other words, not a visible appearing, but an invisible one by his spirit to encourage and strengthen the souls of this suffering church. Now, while that is certainly true, based upon what he already mentioned in verse 10, I'm not denying any of what I've just said, I think it's more likely a reference to the second coming. Like we read in chapter 1, verse 1, or 2, verse 16, or 225, 22.7, 22.12, 22.20, all referring to this phrase, I'm coming soon, as a second coming reality. Now, of course, we need to remember from the rest of the Bible that soon doesn't necessarily mean tomorrow, right? With the Lord, we know he's patient, and with him, you know, a thousand, thousand days are but an hour. So we need to recognize that that soon there is a relative concept, and as the New Testament encourages us, our salvation is nearer now than we first believed. And so we can always say the Lord is coming soon. As long as we understand by soon, it doesn't mean immediate or right now, although we pray that his kingdom would come and his will would be done, and we even pray, come Lord Jesus. But nevertheless, it's always sooner now than it was. And then he says to hold fast, hold fast. And I love this because it's a reminder, brothers and sisters, Jesus doesn't expect you to be heroic. He just expects you to hold on. Don't you love that? Success for Jesus means you're still standing when the battle's over. Not how many medals you get awarded. The fact that you didn't die. You made it. And now since we're talking about the church in Philadelphia, it seems to me that this would be a most appropriate time to bring up the most significant event in the history of Philadelphia. And I'm not referring to the signing of the Declaration of Independence, I'm referring to the first fight between Rocky Balboa and Apollo Creed. As the fight draws near and Rocky contemplates his chances against Apollo, he makes the statement, and Brandon Boswell could quote it because he knows it almost as well as the Bible. I can't beat him. All I want to do is go the distance. He acknowledges up front, I ain't putting this guy down. All I want to do is be standing up when the last bell rings. Brothers and sisters, that's the goal of Revelation for you. That's the goal of Revelation Revelation for all of God's people. Be standing when the last bell hits. You'll be bloody. You'll be brutalized. Your legs will be shaken. You'll be holding on to the ropes. Your trainer, the Holy Spirit, will come in behind you holding you up. And you're just glad to be done. But that's the goal. 15 rounds without getting knocked out. Hold fast. Success is measured by going the distance. And Jesus encourages the church with that. Fourthly and finally, he gives one more big encouragement. And wouldn't it be good for us just to pray these things into our lives this week? Focus on, Lord, help me to focus on my Savior. 
and not how I feel or my size or what I'm up to, what I can do. Help me to focus on how big Christ is. Help me to focus on the opportunities you've set before me and not the opposition that I have in my life. Help me to focus on the provision that you promised to me and not the pain I feel. And then finally, focus on your future, not your fears. Focus on your future, not your fears. Look at verse 12. To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Two things. In the future, Jesus promises this church that they will be pillars in God's temple and they will have God's name inscribed on them. First of all, we will be pillars in God's temple. This is a wonderful promise that where God dwells is where we will be. This language indicates the security of these Christians, that they will never be dislodged from the coming new creation. Whatever struggle may be theirs and ours in trying to identify ourselves and our place in the kingdom of God, never forget that you are God's dwelling place. You are the heart of his abode. You are a pillar in his temple, and you will one day fully reflect his beauty and splendor forever and ever, never to go out of it, ever. We will be pillars in God's temple. Also, we will have God's name inscribed on us. Now here, you have both your current identity, Christian, and your ultimate destiny. It, this identity consists of having inscribed on your body and your soul the spirit and name of God, of his city, and of his son, designating you as his cherished possession. Look at a couple of verses on this. Revelation 14.1. We'll come to this, Lord willing, in some months ahead. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And then, of course, as I think we referred to last week in Revelation 22.4, they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. This is a mark of God's possession. It's a mark of God that, that, we, are, that we belong to him, that we are his property. So let me conclude with this precious reminder to us in summary. Jesus, Jesus reassures you, brother and sister, and Heritage Baptist Church this morning, as well as this church in Philadelphia all those centuries ago, that his church is forever his, and that no amount of hardship in this life can undermine our salvation. No depth of pain or deprivation can interrupt disrupt or counteract his determination to bring us safely into his everlasting kingdom and into our eternal reward. Listen, not all the persecution in the world can reverse the decree of Christ to save his own. And not all the hatred and animosity of the devil and his legions can make Christ change his mind about you. 
not all the posturing and strutting of a secular and unbelieving culture can induce Christ to shut the door on those to whom he has decided it will be opened. Not all the threats, the slander, the resistance, or any other attempt on the part of people around us to undermine our relationship with Christ will be succeeded. No one can do this. He will keep you. No one can close the door. You need to know that and believe that. Not your worst enemy can close the door. Not those who mock your faith. Not an economic collapse. Not a government official. Not a prodigal child. Not a loss of religious freedom. Not a terminal illness. Nothing is shutting the door. Even if the collective power of the entire world with the combined energy of all the demonic beings, none of it would be able to move Christ's people one inch or crack that door open one millimeter if Jesus wants to shut it. And neither will anybody have an opportunity to pull it closed if Jesus wants it opened. It's as certain as the empty tomb. We can have injuries inflicted. We can have disappointments brought. We can have dreams shattered. We can have relationships disrupted. But we will never, ever see a closed door from Jesus in our face because he has opened his eternal kingdom to us. So brothers and sisters, with all that in mind, this week, focus on your Savior. Focus on who he is. Remember him. Think about him and how big he is. And let those things shrink down your problems to their appropriate size. And then when you encounter opposition, don't focus on all the things that are going wrong in our culture or in politics or on Facebook or on the news. Don't focus on all that. Focus on the opportunities that God is providing in the midst of that. Oh, that the church would wake up to see that this is not an opportunity to huddle up, get in our bomb shelters, and pray for the second coming. We we are called to engage in this moment, to speak the gospel, to love our neighbors, and to be the salt and light that Jesus has called us to be. So let's not put our heads in the sand. Let's keep our noses in the book, our knees on the ground and our mouths wide open to proclaim Christ. And let's focus on our provision, not our pain. Let's not focus on all the ways in which we're hurting or we're struggling, although those are real, but we need to bring those to the Lord and recognize that he has provided and will provide everything we need to walk through them. And then finally, let's keep our eyes on the future. Let's keep our eyes on what's coming the reality that we'll be pillars in God's temple, the reality that God's name is inscribed on us, the reality that Jesus has opened the door for us and he's never gonna shut it. Let's focus on our future, not our fears. And as we do that, I believe we will hear from the Lord, well done, good and faithful servants. Well, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you for the promises that you give us in your word. Lord Jesus, thank you for being our king and our savior. Thank you for being the king and savior of of this little church, of so many little churches all around the world. In reality, no matter their physical size, really all of your churches are little churches. We're just little power. We're just little people. And uh, living in in a, a time and space, of limited duration, 
and yet you have been pleased to say, I am with you, I desire to use you, I'm with you to, till the end, nothing that you face will be insurmountable for me, hold on, even as I hold fast to you. So Lord, help us to hold fast, help us to hold fast today, help us to hold fast tomorrow, and help us to hold fast this week, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Help us to keep reaching and striving for the upward call of God, as Paul said in Philippians 3, that is ours in Christ Jesus. And we thank you that one day we will know it in its fullest reality and that you have preserved us and will protect us until the end. Hold on to us. Lord, any of those of us here this morning who are yet outside this kingdom, we thank you that you have not shut the door decisively to them, that there is still a wide open door saying, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. May our kids, may our family members, may our friends, may our neighbors, even those of us who sit in these very seats this morning who are yet outside of Christ, come to Christ right now while the door is still open because we know one day it will shut forever. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor.